Good evening, everyone. I think we can begin now. My name is Walter Armbrus. I'm chairing tonight's lecture, which is by Riley Schachter, who is a senior lecturer at the Department of Middle East Studies at Ben Gurion University of the Negev of Israel. He trained as an economic historian and got his PhD from Harvard. I've known him for many years. I think we first met sometime in the 1990s. His first book, well, it was actually about consumption, but it, the title of it is Smoking Culture and Economy in the Middle East, the Egyptian Tobacco Market, 1850 to 2000. And he has now published a second book, which is called The Rise of the Egyptian Middle Class, Socioeconomic Mobility and Public Discontent from Nasser to Sadat. And that's going to be the, the subject of the lecture that he's giving tonight, but he's actually working on a new book project, which is about the social contract in Egypt. I don't know. Maybe in the Q&A you can tell us a little bit about that. But the subject of the lecture is going to be on the 70s and the 80s, which is a topic that hasn't really been explored very well in histories of the Middle East because historians don't really consider it a proper thing to study until it's 50 years old or so. <laughs> so people are only now beginning to delve into the 70s and the 80s, which are fascinating decades. I've been to a couple of conferences where people have been kind of revisiting issues that you know, were salient in those decades. I also feel like the 70s and the 80s are my decade. I was 10 at the beginning and 29 at the end. That's where my life was formed. I always thought it was a terrible time, but it's actually very interesting in retrospect. I'll say no more. I'm going to turn this over to Raj Schechter, who's here on research leave in Oxford for the whole year. He's been working from home on his new book project. And I will turn it over to you, Raj. Thank you, Walter, for the nice introduction. It's nice to be here. Thanks all for coming with such miserable day outside. I wouldn't, but it's great if someone has, some of you have read out and, and are uh, with us. It's a book project on which I've worked for ages, but there are two things. First, to write a book and then to talk about what you actually wrote, which are two different things and a new experience for me, kind of going back to what I had in mind and figure out what the project to be all about. The project is an attempt to rethink the 1970s and 1980s. And what I found most amazing when I was delving into it is, uh, is a gap. I'm, I was about to suggest I'm an economic historian by, by training. A gap between what economists back then argue was a, a period of fast economic growth and the public discourse of the period, a lot of public discourse, or Egyptian public discourse, which saw this period of, as full of crisis. And I, in this book, in this project, I kind of set out to explore this gate, to understand how come Egypt could have uh, experienced both, both at, at the same time, just to give you an, an, an kind of indication of what I'm talking about. In terms of uh, economic indicators, the ones that uh, economists would use, the period between 1975 and 1986, so uh, yearly growth of about 9% of uh, GNP. It's a, a greater saving and investment. It's an improvement in uh, income distribution, that is greater equality, decreasing poverty, measured in indicators such as calorie intake, or child mortality, and, and rise in life expectancy. This is fairly well documented. There's always problem with numbers and statistics, but this has been fairly well documented. At the same time, when you open Egyptian uh, newspapers of the period, or look at films from the, that era, or look at the, at the academic writing. Egyptian, but not, not only Egyptian, on, on what was taking, going to, uh, taking place was a period full of problems. Food crisis, housing crisis, 
but also, this is very obvious, period of social and cultural crisis. So why such gap? How to explain it? And also, in a sense, how to offer a counter-narrative to the rather negative public discourse, but also perhaps also explain better the economic side of it. Why the gap between what one could measure and how people actually lived and experienced life in Egypt of the time. I came out from the book with two major insights that kind of guided me in the narrative that I produced. First insight regarding the Egyptian economy was that A, we can see much continuity, and perhaps surprisingly so, but between Nasser's Arab socialism and Sadat's open-door policy. And second, and perhaps more important, was that open doors policy was in many respects less important than a second economic event that was second place and this is the oil boom of the 1970s and early 1980s. And what was especially fascinating for me and I think was influencing social events that were taking place is what I came up to describe as economic liberalization from below as opposed to from above. That is, if the open door policy was about economic liberalization, it has much less impact on events than the oil boom and its influence on, on uh, local economy in terms of the amount of remittances, the development of informal economy, and the construction boom that the oil boom created. And, and I'll develop this as I'll go along with my uh, presentation. So this is one kind of insight that I got how to read the Egyptian economy of the period in a way that would make more sense. And second is to delve a bit more into the kind of public discourse of the period and in, in a way to kind of disaggregate it or to ask who is talking, to whom, and in a broader way, whose crisis was it actually. And here, again, my main understanding of this public discourse is that we need to perform some kind of class analysis of this discourse. Because, we, again, we need to disaggregate the public into dominate, perhaps, a hegemonic social group that uh, was talking and not only dominating the public discourse, but also representing its own interests. Problematic word, but I, I use this word for the lack of a better one, in again discussing the economic, political, social, perhaps also cultural situation of the period. One significant thing that we need to keep in mind, at least for, the, for part of the 1970s and 80s, that we have a greater freedom of speech between 1976 and 1980, and then in the early years of the Mubarak era. So, complaints and the fairly open uh, uh, political criticism is also part of this relative openness of the press mostly to such criticism. In focusing on the middle class, I ended up doing kind of historical sociology of the role of this social group. I'm emphasizing this because Lucy Resort is sitting here and she's, she's taking a completely different approach to what middle class is and how it works and how to figure it out. But so my, my understanding is, and there are various definitions of uh, these social groups, it could be uh, an economic definition, a very basic one, a group that is kind of above a certain po uh, poverty line and below a certain uh, line of wealth. It could relate to education and occupation, mostly white color, occupation of, of middle class. It could be related, and, and here I come with my own experience in an earlier project. It can be related to a lifestyle and or levels of uh, consumption. 
It could be related to uh, subjectivity, how people feel about themselves, their worldview. This notion of middle class was oftentimes criticized for being too much to too many. But I, I still think that it, it holds water, at least for my project, because it can, in one way or another, explain, again, who is talking and, and about what. And I'll try to make sense of this in my talk. My understanding of, of middle class and all that brings together three different understandings of this social group in, in Egypt. First, it was a social group that originated with the state. At one point, where you can take this argue very far back, since Muhammad Ali and the rise of uh, locally trained state officials. Collectively, this group is known as the FNDIA. It had different variations, different generations of this social group. But I can still see this combination of state education and state employment as the core of the group to which I relate. And again, I'll show you some figure about that later on. So close connection with the, uh, with the state, origin of the middle class uh, with the state. This is oftentimes contradicted with the uh, sort of European middle class who is supposed to uh, emerge with the, with the making of market economy. I'm not necessarily buying into this dichotomy, but just to give you an impression of where I'm, I'm uh, standing at in terms of representing this group. A second definition of, of my middle class, or the middle class I'm using in my analysis, is emphasis on the notion of middle rather than class. And hopes, but also tensions and anxieties associated in this middle position, below and above, let's say, upper and, and uh, uh, lower middle class, and a sense of insecurity as a result of that, that is slipping down the social ladder, but also expectations or aspiration of climbing up the same ladder. And in my eyes as well, resentment against competition or new social climber, climbers would be very obvious in, in a period of very rapid socio-economic mobility as the 1970s and 1980s were. Now, I'm talking about middle class. I'm, to, I'm not talking necessarily about class consciousness or what Marx would call the, the class for itself. But I do talk about common grievances within this social group that would lead to a, a protest and, and uh, action. So it's not as, as an hermetic definition as Marx would provide, but it's still, a, a, in, in a way, a call for action. Or at least talk about necessity for action. Now, in the rest of the time I, I have, I want to uh, share with you three interrelated themes that occupy this book. Uh, in a way, three uh, gaps or contradictions between the economic growth that I've uh, described and public discourse of crisis. The first gap was the gap between state provisioning of goods and services and public disappointment from the state that was seemingly not uh, doing enough. In the uh, jargon that I use in the book and also work on uh, in my new project, this is called the uh, social contract or an implicit agreement between the citizens and, and the states about what are the obligations of the uh, states, what the citizens and what should or should not do the citizens uh, in return. It is oftentimes described as an authoritarian bargain by which the, the state provides certain services or services associated with social welfare 
and citizens are supposed to agree to an authoritarian uh, regime or to a very little say in immediate politics, although citizens do have other ways to express opposition even under authoritarian regimes such as in Egypt. So one gap is between greater state provisioning of services and public complaints about the lack of such uh, services. A second gap or contradiction is between social tension or conflict in a period of, of rapid socio-economic mobility. Okay, again, many people, I would argue, improve on the socio-economic conditions, but it was also a period of much social tension in Egypt, and I'll try to explain why. And the third theme is Islamization, or at least the way Islamization of the period was conceived, understood by what I would term the first generation of interpreters or commentators about a growing place of religion, increasing in the public sphere. The, the common argument was that Islamization was closely associated with opposition to the open-door policy and increasingly also to uh, President Sadat, I would talk about Islamization as a part of accommodation, social, cultural accommodation, also economic accommodation to changing conditions in Egypt of the period. Now, I'm moving to the first contradiction, uh, again, between the state provisioning and disappointment, public disappointment from the state not doing enough. One of the things that surprised me when I first came into the, this uh, topic was how fast higher education grew during the 1970s and, and early 1980s. Why? Because the literature I was familiar with always talked about the Nasserite era as a, an era in which there was a major growth in higher education, education was made free, there was seemingly a very large increase in the number of university students of, of the period. When I started looking at the number, I quickly realized that actually 1970s, percentage-wise, were much more significant in terms of this growth. More students coming into the uh, system, new universities established in provincial towns in uh, Egypt, and also quite surprisingly, at least for me when I was looking at it, increasing number of uh, female students during this time. One thing that we have to explain, why would the uh, Egyptian public opinion be disappointed when an education system was expanding? The surprising thing is that we think about Nasserite uh, era as an era of populism, opening up the system. So that was no less populist than uh, Nasser was in, in uh, that sense. The same was true for employment, and state employment and, su and such. And again, from people who know the, the official economic history of the, of the period, it's surprising because Sadat's open-door policy was supposed to be about liberalizing the, uh, the economic system, therefore the downsizing in one way or not, the, the state in one way or another. And when you look at the figures, it's, they are very, very much the opposite. A huge increase in state employment since the early 1970s. So how do we explain that? Again, when, when you look at the, at the situation more closely, what you see is that while expansion of the education system was taking place, there is also a major deterioration in the quality of teaching. So the system was expanding, but the quality was, was deteriorating, more people were getting into the system, and 
As a result, also the, uh, the basic laws of uh, supply and demand started to kick in. That is, more students graduating and less employment for the educated, and this was especially so in the private sector, therefore also explain why continued motivation to join the uh, public sector. And the public sector, the same, the same phenomenon again. Vast expansion of the system, but decreasing compensation or wages for state employer, uh, employees. So state employment was, was increasing. What was surprising to me, for me to realize that women employment in the public sector was also increasing very fast. Again, nationalist era as there was a, a official policy of state feminism. So one would think that this is a period when women go, got into the system in large numbers. When you compare the nationalist era with the uh, with Sadat era, this is definitely not the case. Other uh, indicators of provision of, of the uh, social contract were food provision by the by the government. That is uh, significant increase in subsidies of basic food and, and uh, commodities during this period, again, much greater than in an earlier period. And at the same time, much local debate about, or outcry rather than debate, about food crisis. We have a situation in which the government is putting more and more money, but prices keep on rising and local inflation as a result, partly of the government putting more money into the system and, and also as a result of, of the regional oil boom, you see a situation in, by which the government is putting more money but citizens are feeling shortages and are complaining to the government for not doing enough to resolve this situation. The same was true for state expenditures on infrastructure and, and the housing. Again, greater state uh, expenditures but much complaint about housing shortages and, and housing crisis. So we have, and, and this is even double confusing because it's a period in Egypt in which we have simultaneously all boom construction and shortages of, of housing as a result of, of uh, increase in, in uh, prices. I'm moving to the second contradiction that I'm focusing on in my book, and I'll, I'll take a bit more time on uh, this one. This is the uh, socioeconomic mobility of the period and social tension that one can observe in the public discourse. On the one hand, and when you, when you review the literature, it's, it's quite obvious, 1970s and 1980s are a period of economic opportunity. They are not the uh, industrial revolution that Egyptians were uh, hoping for since at least the 1920s, but, and I'm using here the term of economic historian Jean de Vries, it's a period of industrial revolution. That is, there are many more employment opportunities inside Egypt and especially outside the country through migration to oil producing countries and kind of effect of this on local economic growth that is remittances coming back home increase local demand there is more investment the uh, price of labor increases which is very good news for uh, peasants and lower class urbanites in, in uh, Egypt of, of the period is a growth of the so-called informal economy, the economy that the state does not necessarily track or tax, but is very significant in terms of, again, new economic opportunities in, in Egypt, again, for women as part of, of uh, increasing in, in, in number of women in the labor force. 
So this is definitely a, a period of economic growth, and especially, especially for, for Egyptian peasantry and lower-class Egyptian in, in towns or cities to improve on the, on the uh, economic conditions. But what would seem, again, uh, at least from, a, from an outsider perspective, as a, a great economic opportunity is not necessarily perceived as such in uh, local public work. This is, again, just to illustrate increase in uh, labor migration since the early 1970s, and this was two or three years earlier than 1975. It was, much, um, it was even much smaller than that. So it's really a huge increase. At one point, we have about, if I remember correctly, 23% or so of Egyptian labor working abroad. So it's, it's, it's not a minor phenomenon in, in, uh, in any way. But again, it's not treated as a welcome change in the public press or other public comments to the extent that it actually is treated. Remittance, when you look at, at the press, you cannot really find or find very little references to uh, labor migration. And when you do find references, they tend to be fairly negative. Just one uh, caricature to demonstrate this. Millions of, of peasants are, are um, migrating for uh, some periods abroad. They are bringing back a significant amount of money, improving living conditions in the countryside to a, a tremendous degree, but are being criticized. This is a bit of an extreme, right? Playing on kind of betrayal of in, in romantic love, but also being criticized, being criticized for, for causing the uh, countryside to be less productive or less agricultural, product, uh, less agricultural production in the, uh, in the countryside, the suburbanization of villages, and in, 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 from a broader perhaps cultural perspective, lack of authenticity in the countryside as a result of this economic change that peasantry is uh, going through. Second voice or critique of contemporary change relates to Again, persons from a lower socioeconomic background, uh, this time again small traders who in, in the press, in local films, in academic writings at times, are associated with black market activities and causing price inflation. In this case, much complaints about butchers and the uh, rising prices of meat, and in, in this particular situation, uh, how butchers are planning to avoid government supervision of maximum prices for meat. Same kind of criticism is true for artisans, especially uh, construction workers, who uh, tend to, according to the criticism, uh, demand high prices for very low quality of, of uh, work and therefore also increase the cost of living for the local middle class. And a third form of, of complaint, again, is against uh, the spreading the spread of corruption. We often associate, and, and in this period as well, corruption with the Egyptian socio-economic or political elite, but much also against the corruption of lower-class Egyptian, in, in this case, uh, these uh, black traders in the black market who find it hard to bribe government officials. If you look at the... Uh, uh, the, the closing is very clear. The, uh, the social background of uh, the official is, the, is a kind of middle class, more educated person as opposed to the uh, black market traders. So far, this, the, the criticism that I, I referred to is, was mostly about economic activity and about people from a lower social background negatively using 
the economic opportunities to improve on, this, uh, on their economic situation. But much of the criticism of the field refers to uh, a broader decline in Egyptian society of the time. That is, decline in the respectability or the morals, and oftentimes this, this respectability and, and morals refer to the decline of Egyptian youth. In much of the contemporary public discourse, we see criticism against disappearance of uh, productive society and, and emergence of, of uh, consumer society, the spread of negative consumerists, oftentimes imported values in the Egyptian society. The result of, of this is a gender crisis that is growing tension between uh, sexes in Egypt, marriage crisis, young male Egyptians having to postpone a marriage because they need to achieve some economic standing before they can marry properly, or even family crisis, when Egyptian families kind of break under economic pressure of the time, and all these themes, and I'm, I'm not giving examples here, all these tropes are very uh, clear in Egyptian films of period, where the love story is very much middle class, Love stories very much broken under the pressure from new social climbers uh, into these uh, uh, social groups. So it's it's not only an, in that sense an economic crisis; it's also a, a social cultural crisis as well. Third contradiction which I uh, want to raise is the uh, Islamization and what it was all about during the 1970s and, and the 1980s. It's a limited criticism or uh, it's a limited explanation of Islamization. I'm not a religious scholar myself and, and my observations are on rather the economic aspects of religious practice rather than belief. Okay, that, that should be clear. What we see in, in what I term first-generation commentary on, on Islamization, and by first-generation I mean scholarship that started to appear since the late, uh, late 1970s and early 1980s, explaining Islamization, oftentimes saying veiling, uh, which was a new phenomenon of the period, what we oftentimes see is, in a sense, what Islamists were saying, that society was corrupt, that, this is my term, not Islamist, that, respectable and I would add middle class persons were losing and, and, and therefore there needs to be some major shift in Egypt and, and Islam was the solution for that. So uh, Saad Din Ibrahim, perhaps the, the most significant sociologist during this period and, and later is coming up with descriptions such as the, uh, the veiled female medical student who is retreating from an alienating world that she is encountering when coming to study in the big city, or a, a, a different vision of the, what he calls the angry young Muslim militant, again, uh, an engineering thinking in that case, that is trying to violently change the, uh, the situation. Scholarship from abroad, like Jill Capel, would talk about the fail of westernization, therefore search for local authentic alternative for that. Here, Wickham would uh, talk about the, uh, the plight of what she terms the lumpen intelligentsia, or the uh, lower middle class that are eroding under the economic circumstances of the period. And again, Islamists would see the self-image of Islamists of the period would be of a kind of an avant-garde who would try to change a reality of the time. My two observations 
when looking at, at Islamic literature, mostly the, uh, the press, but also at observing the growing presence of religion in public spaces, and I'll, I'll elaborate on this in a second, are, are, are two. First is that much of what was described as Islamic opposition to contem contemporary change is shared by a broader middle-class constituency. That is, if, if you compare, for the lack of better terms, secular, often uh, uh, pressed, and a press that can be from official or semi-official press to the, the left, and, and, and Islamic press, you see more or less the same complaints about the state not doing enough, increasing lack of variety, uh, consumerism that is becoming more and more prevalent in Egyptian society of, of the time. So there's much, uh, much of an agreement, a broad agreement, a consensus between uh, left, right, and center in, in political terms, but also against secularists and religious uh, Islamists about what went wrong in uh, Egypt of uh, the period, which I thought was really, really interesting because when you still read much of the literature about Islamism of the period, it's, it's about this kind of, of uh, opposition and growing opposition. And when I look at growing present of, of religious belief or religious practice in, in public speaker, I see also different stuff or things. What I see is that the, uh, the Islamic movement is uh, very much part of what I earlier termed the process of liberalization from below. That is, its growing presence is a, is a part of a growing or new economic opportunities of the period. Examples, a significant increase in the so-called Islamic economic sector. That is, oftentimes, uh, enterprises with, with, with the title of Islam, I'm not, or title, but also uh, uh, a practice associated with the religious belief, which are becoming increasingly active in uh, Egyptian economy, from investment companies to just regular uh, manufacturers who would add Islam to the, to the title. So Islamic economic sector increases with, with the growth in economic activity of, of uh, the period. Islamic non-governmental organizations and its uh, activities also increasing. It's not easy to differentiate between the two. Islamic NGOs oftentimes do a work not for profit, but sometimes also for profit. So it's, it, again, there's a significant overlap between the two. But they're definitely uh, more present in provisioning of education, health services, which are, again, are a result of the uh, socioeconomic change of the period and a change that comes not from a top-down state decision-making or, or policy, but rather than bottom or actually middle-up economic initiative of the period. And also, and this is perhaps the, the most, was more surprising to me, uh, the creation of, as opposed to criticism of local consumer society, the creation of a religious consumer society in Egypt of the period. And, and, and this could fairly well be documented by if you measuring the amount, uh, the increasing number of private mosques in this period. Walter, he wrote about the uh, Christianization, no, Christian, Christianization of Ramadan or the commercialization of uh, Ramadan. So rather than negating consumer society, what I see in this period is the making of a religious consumer society as, a, as an alternative to the so-called secularist uh, one. But one that in terms of the, its internal dialect, dialectics is, is fairly similar, right? 
is also built on more money, more economic opportunities, and new opening that the social socioeconomic change is, is allowing. Just to conclude what I was trying to convey in, the, uh, in this presentation, if it was not clear by now, I tend to see the 1970s and 1980s in a more uh, positive way that they were socioeconomic change of the 1970s and 1980s in a more positive way than it was previously discussed. There was much outcry against the government not doing enough or not following the, the social contract close enough, but this I read as a form of negotiation, sometimes violent negotiation, but a form of negotiation between citizens and the state. Social change of the period was definitely not only negative, it was a period of significant uh, socioeconomic mobility of poor and perhaps, again, what I term the making of a, of a middle-class society. That is, middle society has significantly expanded over time with growing tension and anxiety as a result of the increase or the expansion of, of middle society. Uh, anxiety, as, which I associate in tension between so-called old middle class and new middle class during this, uh, this period. And I'm saying so-called because in reality the, dis the distinction was, was never clear. Why? Because when Egyptians improve on their economic situation, the first thing they do is to send their boy or girl to school and in the hope that they will at one point get a position with the government. So it's, it's a, a kind of seeming gap or distinction between old and new is, is really not, uh, not very clear in, in any way. And again, Islamization, uh, at least the, uh, the way religious is practiced in public sphere, is definitely, definitely represented the dialectics of socio-economic change, not necessarily only a reaction or negative reaction to it. Just a brief afterthought about why all this matters. I mean, it, it definitely matters for historians who would, would like to, like myself, who would like to put the historic record straight. But I think it, it, uh, the significance of changing our understanding of 1970s also has much to do with the contemporary affairs as, uh, as well. In much of the, of, the, of the literature of the period, uh, or much of the literature is disguised and discussed as kind of a, a, a decade of lost opportunity. What is the lost, was the lost opportunity? There was a chance for uh, economic reform, the, economic liberalization of the economy with the open door policy, but this, as long as there was enough money in the system, this never really happened. Uh, I beg to differ, differ. I would suggest that again, the main change that uh, is taking place is the expansion or improvement in economic condition and expansion of a local middle class, which created a new setting in Egypt in, in its uh, aftermath. That is, 10 or 15 years after the early 1970s, we are facing a new socio-economic situation in, uh, in Egypt. Any attempt to reform, for example, through industrialization, which was a kind of a panacea to cure all uh, Egyptians' uh, uh, social ills, uh, till this period, are kind of disappearing. Because when you have a significant portion of the Egyptian society, something between 35 to 50 percent, who are considering themselves, or being considered middle class, it, to industrialize in, 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 under this, such condition would be uh, almost uh, unthinkable. 
and in, in that sense, although we experience or Egypt experienced uh, socioeconomic improvement, this socioeconomic improvement, uh, improvement also uh, created new aspirations for Egyptian citizens, which the government would be very hard pressed to follow. And in a sense, we are experiencing a situation in which there is no alternative model for, for economic development of Egypt. Since this, if we want to, look, to take like a, a long-term perspective on counterfeit, this is this is a situation that Egypt, and I, I would dare even to expand this to other uh, states in, in, in the uh, Middle East, this is a situation in which Egypt in, in, uh, has been locked into in the last 30 years or so, including the, the, the condition that, were, that underlined the uh, Arab Spring events in Egypt and, and uh, elsewhere. It's kind of a, a deadlock in the options for significant economic improvement for middle society and uh, struggling middle society over the years as such. So thank you for listening and I'm very open to questions. Thank you.